I'm the, uh, I'm the downer this morning, coming to you from Jeremiah. He had, the, he had the rough end of the stick. His job was basically to be depressing most of the time. And that's the kind of the tone of the passage that we're looking at this morning. But there's one thing I want you to take away. There's one thing I want you to remember this morning. Don't be complacent. Don't be complacent. That's the message that I have. The one thing I want you to take away. You're going to get sick of me saying it, but I want you to hear the words. Don't be complacent. It's pretty simple. This message from Jeremiah is a warning to us, a reminder, a moment for us to stop and think about what we're doing. It's time for us to think about the life that we're living. Think about the things that we love. Think about the people that we ignore. Don't be complacent. The thing about being complacent is that it's easy. It comes naturally. You slide into complacency without thinking about it much. It's usually not a conscious decision to become complacent. You just take stuff for granted. You get pretty satisfied with the way things are. You're not too worried about things that you need to sort out. You think, she'll be right. It'll all be sorted in the wash. Don't be complacent. What kind of complacency am I talking about? I'm talking about complacency in our Christian living, complacency in our faith, complacency in our strive for holiness. And I'm not just talking about you, I'm talking about me. I get complacent. It's so easy in life to fall into a rut, even with exercising our faith. We, we come to Christ, we have a fresh and exciting realisation about Jesus' atoning death and the offer of salvation And God turns our lives around when we come to him in faith. We have a new way of seeing the world, a new, better way of living when we come to Jesus. We are so thankful for God's gifts to us, especially the new life that he gives us by his Holy Spirit. And we want to please God with our thoughts and our words and our attitudes and our actions. But as day gives way to day, as month gives way to month and year to year, we find ourselves in the same place. We get in a rut. We're still dealing with the same sins. And we get a bit numbed by the gospel story. Christianity loses its shine for us a little. We hear the preacher proclaim another sermon on the good news of Jesus Christ. And our eyes glaze over. Our thoughts wander. We think, yeah, yeah, I know this stuff already. Give me something new to learn. We find excuses for our failures and we suppress the conviction of sin by getting angry at something irrelevant like how long the service is or how bad the theology the preacher is. Our drive to evangelize drops off, our passion for prayer wanes, our thirst for God's word peters off and our sprint for holiness becomes a bit of a stumbling toddle. Friends, don't be complacent. The Israelites became complacent. They were pulled out of slavery in Egypt. They were delivered into the promised land. They were lavished with gifts and blessings. 
The Israelites were given more than they could ever ask or imagine. And it was built upon an agreement with God, a covenant with God. God would give them good stuff if they would remain faithful. If they were obedient, he would bless. If they rebelled, he promised to curse. And man, man did they get blessing. God drove out the inhabitants of the land before them. He made the way clear. All they had to do was show up and city walls crumbled. They got houses and farms and vineyards and cities. They got a land flowing with milk and honey. But soon, the life of blessing became the new normal. They, be- they became complacent. The blessings were a bit blah. It was all par for the course. They forgot where the blessing came from. They forgot the covenant that they made with God. They forgot what was at stake. The Israelites messed up their government. They messed up their religion. They messed up their society. And eventually God got rid of most of them in 722 BC, where he took out the northern kingdom, taking them captive into Assyria, or the, or the people who were left got mixed in and lost their identity. Jerusalem in Judah, which is to the south, remained for a time. But then Jeremiah turned up. And he turned up to let the remaining Israelites know, you won't escape the next time round. You'll get what's coming for you. God had made grand promises to Israel. And God would keep those promises. But first he had to deal with the covenant breakers. He needed to deal with the rebellious, stubborn, and abusive people of Judah who were carrying on as if their actions didn't matter. As if they owned the place. As if they were not bound by God's instructions to them. As if God would keep his promises to bless, but kind of forget about those promises to curse. In three sections, we will see how God plans to deal with them. And why his judgment is justified. It's a stark reminder to us, don't be complacent. In the first section... We see Judah is warned of an impending invasion, a justified invasion of utter destruction. If you look to verse 15, God says, Behold, I am bringing against you a nation from afar, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. It is an enduring nation. It is an ancient nation, a nation whose language you do not know, nor can you understand what they say. You see how that starts? God is responsible. He says, I am bringing them against you. It's a hard word, especially if we have in our minds a picture of God that doesn't contain destruction and decimation. We love to talk about the love of God, but sometimes it's easier to just let the whole wrath and and destruction and terror stuff sit to the side. God is bringing a foreign nation who we later find out is Babylon, the successors to the Assyrian Empire. And their capital, believe it or not, is Babylon. They're way over to the desert in the east. You can see Judah and Jerusalem down there. And then over the the east is Babylon over here. And these people in Babylon take over the, the Assyrian Empire after the Assyrian Empire falls. And they come down to Jerusalem to take Jerusalem. 
these people are foreign. They, the people of Babylon are not God's chosen people, but God will use them as an instrument to bring judgment against God's people, the faithless people of Judah. They will come with death and destruction. Like hungry monsters, they will swallow up everything of worth, everything that the people took for granted. If you look in verse 16 and 17, their quiver is like an open tomb. They are all mighty warriors. They shall eat up your harvest and your food. They shall eat up your sons and your daughters. They shall eat up your flocks and your herds. They shall eat up your vines and your fig trees, your fortified cities, which in which you trust. They shall beat down with the sword. This is pretty rough. Pretty rough stuff. It will be bad. Babylon will devour their food, their livelihood, their families, their defenses. You imagine if a foreign nation came here and did the same. They would decimate our economy, take away our jobs, destroy our farms, kill our families, and steamroll our defense force. Nothing would be left of our nation except a scarred landscape. This is what God's threatening for Judah. And God means business. Jeremiah warns the people that God will decimate them. God will crush them. He will destroy them. But he leaves a glimmer of hope in verse 18. Even in those days, declares the Lord, I will not make a full end of you. He will not make a full end. There will be something left over. There will be something left for him to complete his earlier epic promises with. Even in the hardest times, God is fulfilling his promises. God is going to cut Judah down like a rose bush, cut off all the branches so that there's almost nothing left but a next to lifeless twig. But that means that his promises can burst forth with fresh foliage and bring forth the beautiful rose of salvation, our Lord Jesus Christ. But that's all that's there at the moment is a glimmer. So this seems pretty harsh. It's a pretty nasty idea to comprehend that God is coming in and is just going to wipe out everything. And he's going to use a foreign nation to do it. But when they inevitably come to their senses, the people of Judah will ask, why did God do this to us? Why have we suffered God's wrath? There's a clear answer in verse 19. And when your people say, why has the Lord our God done all these things to us? You shall say to them, as you have forsaken me and served foreign gods in your land, so you shall serve foreigners in a land that is not yours. Does God want to destroy Judah? They've been faithless. They have served foreign gods. Gods that are not the true God. Gods who are impotent and useless. They've forsaken God, the Lord, the one who rescued them out of the slavery in Egypt. He was the one who delivered them into the promised land. He was their protector and rescuer on countless occasions. Just look at the book of of Judges and how many times they rebelled and God came to their rescue. And as we shall soon see, he was the one who provided the rain and seasons on which they relied for their food. So God's handed them over. If you want foreign gods, well, you can go and serve those foreigners in a foreign land. 
brothers and sisters, don't be complacent. There's an impending judgment for this world too. Now, we are far removed from Israel and and their covenant in the land, but we face a future judgment, the last judgment. God is bringing his wrath against this whole world to destroy everything that stands in opposition to him. Paul says to the Thessalonians, the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his might, mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. And Peter also says in his letter, the heavens and the earth now exist, that now exist, are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But we don't need to be afraid because God is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and when the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people... Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for the hastening of the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Don't be complacent. We have entered into new lives in Jesus but we have come to live lives of holiness and godliness. We are ready for the judgment. We serve the one true God in faithfulness. We wait to see his promise. It's the fulfillment of his promises to us. In the next section, the people of Judah are shown the stupidity of their failure to fear God. First, God notes how dim-witted they are, how foolish and senseless people. They have eyes, but they don't use them. They've got ears, but they don't use them either. They're fools, idiots who won't bend to God's will. They won't fear God, the same God who controls the oceans. If you look in verse 22 and 23, Do you not fear me, declares the Lord? Do you not tremble before me? I place the sand as a boundary for the sea, a perpetual barrier that it cannot pass. Though the waves toss, they cannot prevail. Though they roar, they cannot pass over it. But this people has a stubborn and rebellious heart. They've turned aside and they've gone away. Have you ever watched the raging sea? I don't just mean on like a, uh, on a nice sunny day where winds are calm. Have you seen the sea in a storm? Have you seen it thrash? And twist, the dark waves foam and hiss. Anything that's in the water gets tumbled and smashed against the shore. As much as us as humans have achieved, we still have no hope of controlling the raging sea. But God does. 
God sets its boundary. God holds back the raging waters. We know that God uses the weather, the moon, the tides, the currents. And these are all part of his order of the universe to set the boundary of the sea. In the constancy of physics, God sets the world in order so that it can be relied upon, so that it can come and go in regularity, so that we know that it will come far and no further. It's so regular we can predict what will, where the sea will be in years in advance. I can tell you now that, accepting some cataclysmic event, that on the 31st of December next year, the, at 6.09 a.m., there will be a low tide in Macquarie, uh, in Port Macquarie, of 380 millimetres. We rely on the constancy of God's world the one who holds it all in order. His order prevails. Now, if God holds the oceans in check with their chaotic movement and power, who do the people of Judah think they are to rebel against him? Who do they think they are that they can turn against God? Those who cannot do a thing against the power of the ocean thinks that they can achieve something by going up against the God who controls it. What arrogance, what pride, what insolence. We know in life that a a parent won't put up with a continually disobedient child. A king won't put up with continually disobedient subjects. A general won't put up with continually disobedient soldiers. And God won't put up with continually disobedient people. These people have turned against the one who gives them the regular rain and seasons. They've taken these for granted. If you look in verse 24 and 25, they do not say in their hearts, let us fear the Lord our God who gives us the rain in its season, the autumn rain and the spring rain and keeps for us the weeks appointed for the harvest. Your iniquities have turned these away and your sins have kept good from you. Their failure to fear the Lord, to be faithful to him, has meant God has every right to punish them by removing the regular rains. He has disrupted the pattern of the weather in order to punish Judah. I'm sure parents have had experiences like this where they're dealing with an ungrateful and disobedient child. So they will remove something whether it be dessert or toys or freedom, go to your room, free time, they'll remove something in order to jolt them to their senses, to punish them in discomfort so that they realize what they have, that they will appreciate and be thankful for what they have. The disciplined child knows that they are not entitled to the blessings of life. And Judah, like disobedient children, needs to be reminded that they are not entitled to the land and the rain and the blessings. God has come down hard on Judah to wake them from their ungrateful complacency. They're not content to wait for the regular rain and seasons. Sorry, they are content to wait and receive the rain and seasons without care for the one who is actually giving it to them. I probably don't need to tell you that we are often just like Judah. We are lulled into a false sense of security. Many, if not most of us, have never had to worry about where our next meal is coming from. We've never had to live the hard life. 
We often don't care about the good stuff that we have until it is not there. We take for granted the weekly paycheck until the day when we get let go. We take for granted that we'll have a fridge full of groceries until we can afford to buy them. We take for granted our cars until the day that they're broken. We take for granted our plumbing until the water's turned off. We take for granted our shelter until we lose the house and we have to rough it on the cold streets. On top of taking so much for granted, we have the nerve to disobey God. It's not enough that we're often thankless, but we go and turn our backs on him to pursue our own agendas, the agendas of a stubborn and rebellious heart. It's a heart that we were born with, but it's a heart that needs to be dealt with. But what kind of agendas do we pursue? Well, let's consider a few of the most common for us, all of which can be good things, but we often chase them and they become our idols. We chase wealth creation, whether it's a bigger house or a, or a fatter retirement fund. We chase after the luxurious life instead of the holy life. Or maybe we chase after personal fulfillment, where what we feel and experience takes precedence in our life over truth and justice. Or maybe we pursue relationships when we seek to build romance and family or friendships instead of building our faith. Or maybe we chase after power and control, trying to make things in life go our way instead of God's way. We live in a land of plenty and the world screams at us constantly to chase after these things, the benefits of wealth, fulfillment, relationships and control, which are good things in their place but we often idolize them and we feel entitled to them. We get sucked into the well, the vortex. We get sucked into the lies and deceptions of the world and before you know it, we look just like the world, except we have a religious club meeting on Sunday mornings. Don't be complacent. The slide of Judah into false religion and ungratefulness was easy enough in the hard life of the ancient world. How much easier is it in our day and age to slide into complacency, to be distracted and entangled with the things of the world? We are not entitled to this life. We are not owed the comforts that we enjoy. We don't deserve what we have. It comes at the pleasure of the Lord. The blessings are by his hand. Whatever we good we have is from him. Will you fear the Lord? Will you follow him faithfully? Will you listen to the one who holds creation in order? Will you look to our provider in thankfulness and tremble at our mighty God? The problems in Judah are exposed in our next section, with Jeremiah revealing two examples of systematic sin. Their rebellious heart attitudes are evident in the way that they live. It's ingrained in their society, this, this complacency, this, this turning from God. Example one is the abuse of wealth and power, which is most clearly evident in verses 28 and 29, if you want to have a look. They have grown fat and sleek. They know no bounds in deeds of evil. They judge not with justice the cause of the fatherless to make it prosper. They do not defend the rights of the needy. 
Shall I not punish them for these things, declares the Lord? And shall I not avenge myself on a nation such as this? These people who have sway in community, the wealthy, the powerful, people are abusing their power. They're abusing the weak. They're looking for opportunities to take advantage of people. They're abusing people who rely on the, on the structures and systems of society and on justice. If, if you're well off in society, it doesn't matter if it's this society or some other, usually you can overcome some of the troubles of life that come against you, whether somebody rips you off in a business deal or if somebody steals something for you, from you, whatever it might be. It might be inconvenient or frustrating, but usually if you're well off, you can recover. But if you have next to nothing, if there's nobody in your family to look out for you, if you have no wealth, if you have no government providing benefits of health and, and, and funds, if there's nobody there to look out for you, you need the court system and the rules of society to make up, to get justice and repayment. If you've been ripped off, you need justice so that you can get so you, can, so you can get what's been stolen from you back. Instead of giving the orphans, the poor and the needy justice, they make things go whatever the way they want. Those who have the power to decide are probably deciding based on who gives them the biggest bribe. And if you've got nothing, then you've got nothing to give a bribe with. And I'm sure you can see how this is problematic. You can see how this is a problem. Whether weak and the needy are being abused. Injustice lies in the face of God's character. And God is going to step in and vindicate the people who have been wronged. He asks the rhetorical question. We know the answer to it. He asks the rhetorical question, shall I not avenge myself on a nation such as this? But friends, we aren't freed from the need to care for the poor and needy. Even James tells us, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. God takes the plight of the poor and needy seriously and he will defend them. He will avenge them. We who know the character of God have an obligation to represent God's character to the weakest in our society to those who are stuck in hard times or those who are stuck in a hard place. But next we see another example of systematic sin. It's an appalling and horrible thing that has happened in the land. If you're looking at verse 30 and 31. The prophets prophesy falsely and the priests rule at their direction. My people love to have it so. But what will you do when the end comes? And the priests are, the, are going their own way. The, the ones who are meant to be the very representatives of God, the ones who are meant to give them God's word and to teach them God's way are doing what's right in their own eyes. Do you see how this is described? It's appalling. It's horrible. They should be delivering the word of God to the people truthfully and leading the people in the proper worship of God. But instead, they're leading the people astray. They're doing what they like, probably to keep popular. After all, it says, the people 
love to have it this way. They would rather hear the easy messages from false prophets about peace and prosperity instead of listening to gloomy old Jeremiah's telling us about death and destruction. They want to hear what they want to hear. But isn't it always that way? When given the choice about receiving two conflicting messages, we always choose the one that sounds best to us. The people want to have their choices in life reinforced. They want to the priests to support the way that they're living. And they want prophets that sound good to them. No wonder God is going to destroy the nation of Judah. They are corrupt all the way through. They're ungrateful, unfaithful, serving other gods. They're unjust, irreverent. The place is a mess. It's a messed up government in It's messed up religious leaders and it's a messed up population. It sounds a lot like where we live. We're not Israel in the promised land, let's make that clear, but we live in a world where where those provide justice for the weak. Do I need to switch to a different mic? We live in a world where those power don't provide justice for the weak. Just look at the Queensland Parliament this past week, authorising baby murder. They're not protecting the helpless. And our government haven't been doing a great job of promoting righteousness either. Our religious leaders are, many of them, running off and giving people what they want to hear, whether it's about sexuality or about the exclusivity of the gospel or about how people can use God to get what they want in life. They're misleading the people. And people love it. People lap up government unrighteousness. And they applaud church false teaching as progress. It's an appalling and horrible thing. Friends, we live in a country that is worthy of God's judgment too. And God's going to set things right. At times it feels like we're incapable of setting things right. But but God says, don't worry. God says, don't worry, vengeance is mine, I will repay. Even so, friends, don't be complacent. Don't be, don't fall into the trap of going along with the way of society and culture. In an ideal world, our society and culture would seek after God and his ways. But unfortunately, that's not the reality. And society, our culture is not neutral. Instead, we're a nation made up of people who are complacently promoting injustice, unrighteousness, and we're happy to listen to false teachers as long as they say what we want to hear. Where does this leave us? It's all a bit depressing, isn't it? All this wrath and destruction and judgment. But I want you to feel a little bit of the despair. I want you to feel a bit of the tone of Jeremiah and the message that he has to bring against his people. It's serious. Feel a little bit of the ominous approach of God's wrath. Because God's ominous approach comes to our world. His wrath comes to this present world. The end is approaching. Judgment is included. Vindication will come for those 
who have suffered injustice. God's vengeance will come. And there are consequences to being unfaithful, ungrateful, and corrupt. Now, brothers and sisters, we know that if we repent and believe, we put our faith in Jesus, he delivers us from the wrath to come. We will be secure and saved. But that doesn't allow us to be complacent. We come to Christ and we must follow him. We must come to his word and learn the way of faithfulness. We must follow the example of those who have gone before us in the faith. The Bible is full of warnings that we must take this task seriously. There will be people who appear to be on the path to salvation, but they'll wander off. I'm sure many of us know people like that, who we thought were the greatest Christians ever. And then before you know it, they've wandered off. We need to take the warning seriously. And Jesus keeps us secure to the end by giving us these warnings. He gives us these warnings so that we will not be tricked, so that we will not become complacent. Jesus keeps us secure by showing us the stupidity and danger of the path that leads to destruction. And if you are a follower of Jesus, we must take seriously the warnings lest we be like the folks of Judah who had the promises of God, who had the blessings of God, but they turned away and they receive a justified punishment. Now, for them, they received an earthly and and temporal punishment. They received a punishment in this life of losing their land. But that's a smaller picture of the greater judgment that is to come. We don't stand to lose a bit of land in Israel. We stand to lose eternity. And friends, if I've scared you a little bit, that's good. It's good to come before our God in fear and trembling and remember. He's not tame. It's good to be reminded. It's good to be shaken out of our complacency. It's good to be warned of the severity of God. But also in seeing the severity, we are reminded of the beauty of the gospel. We are reminded how wonderful his grace is to us in Jesus Christ. That though we deserve wrath, he would pluck us out. He would, he would protect us. That he would take us. That he would send his son to die for us. He gave Christ what he didn't deserve so that we could receive what we didn't deserve. We deserve the wrath, but he gives us righteousness. He cleanses us. He purifies us. He fills us with God's spirit so that we can live for him. Will you throw that away? It won't be a smooth road to eternal life. Jesus said, as recorded in Luke, watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life. And that day will come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape the things that are going to take place. That you may escape to stand before the Son of Man. What will you do when the end comes? 
That's how Jeremiah finishes his passage. That's how I want us to finish today. What will you do when the end comes? Let's pray. Father, we recognise that everything that we have which is good comes from your hand. We receive blessings abundantly, physical blessings. We don't have worries or cares, not real worries or cares most of the time. In fact, usually we are, usually we're in a place where we don't have to worry about anything. But Lord, we take that for granted. We, we confess that to you now. We take it for granted. Lord, we feel like we're entitled to the good things of life. And Lord, we take our faith for granted. We take your sacrifice of Christ for granted. Lord, help us. Keep us from that. Lord, keep us on the narrow path that leads to eternal life. Lord, keep us from wandering off and being distracted by the cares of the world. Lord, keep us from being faithless. Lord, we ask this because we recognize that we can't do it in ourselves. We rely on your Holy Spirit to work in us. Lord, we are helpless. We're harassed like sheep without a shepherd. And Lord, we need the good shepherd, Jesus Christ, to come and lead us. We need your Spirit to work in us to to change our, our wretched hearts, to purify us, to make us soft and malleable for the ways of God. Lord, lead us, we pray. Keep us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.